Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the Crash and Ride podcast. I'm Patrick Ferguson. I'm your host. Today's guest is Leslie Sokalberg. Leslie is a singer. Uh, she was a jazz singer. She studied at the University of Miami and she's toured with a bunch of bands. Uh, but now she's primarily a music educator, but most importantly for the purposes of our podcast, she's a suicide survivor. Leslie was on full scholarship to the University of Miami and she got overwhelmed in her junior year of college and decided to take her own life. And she talks about that very frankly uh, in her interview. And it's um, it's a really good talk. If this is your first episode of Crash and Ride, the Crash and Ride podcast is a long-form interview podcast where I talk to musicians who survived anxiety, depression, and addiction. The idea was that if we could cut through the bullshit and have honest, direct conversations about our anxiety and our, our sadness and the things that affect us and keep us from playing well and being okay and drive us to self-harm, that we could maybe start to root those feelings out in ourselves and find out how other people beat them and how they were able to continue to function and continue to be good musicians. As I've said here and on other podcasts many times, no one is going to help us but us. So if you're out on tour and you're listening on your earbuds right now, if you're sitting at home and you're wondering when your next gig's going to come, or if you're sitting at work thinking, man, I wish I was playing more, um, man, we're here for you and we're here to help each other get better and work. I am a working musician. I'm a drummer. I play in the Athens Power Pop Rock Band 5-8. I also play with the Tokyo Rock Band Pinky Doodle Poodle. And uh, for those of you who are regular listeners to the show and you're fans of Pinky Doodle Poodle, things are looking good. We just got our visa application done. I'll let you know what we find out. Should know something the next two weeks. I've also played with Chuck Lavelle, who happens to be today's guest's uncle. Um... Leslie's mom, Judy, is an actress who's worked with my wife a ton, and her uncle is Chuck Lavelle, the keyboard player from the Rolling Stones and the Allman Brothers. And also, her son, Parker, is the bass player in Fishbug, which is, we talk about that a little bit. Parker is this extraordinary musician. He's so young, he's not even old enough to vote yet. And yet, I'll put a link to a couple of their songs in the show notes. you got to check out Fishbug. They are an unbelievably talented Athens, Georgia band. Also, if you're a regular listener or a new listener, um, the odd-numbered episodes lately have been the shorter episodes where I do a song explication, where I take a song that I love and I just go end-to-end in it. And with my limited, I'm a drummer, remember, limited understanding of music theory, I kind of explore why some of the decisions were made about uh, melody and about guitar effects and uh, who played on the track and when it was recorded. And I try to contextualize it in the artist's career. And um, I've done two so far. Episode 41 was the first one. I did Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen because I was reading the Bruce Springsteen biography, uh, Born to Run. What an extraordinary book that is. If you haven't read it, uh, it's it's really remarkable. Bruce's story of... Uh, dealing with his father's mental illness is the sort of through line for that book. And man, I would love to talk to him one day about that. I mean, any performer listening to this program knows that um, you can get out on stage and look like you're having the time of your life and everyone in the audience thinks, man, that guy's got it made. And you know what it's like. You get back to that dark hotel room or the couch in the punk rock house more often in my case, and you think, oh man, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to keep doing this? I, I really would love to talk to Bruce about that experience. Also, just this past Wednesday, I released episode 43 where I went through uh, the power pop band from Athens, Georgia called The Glands. Uh, if you haven't heard of them, I, I'm very sad for you. They are such an extraordinary band, but uh, for reasons I get into in that episode, they're largely unknown. And sadly, the singer-songwriter Ross Shapiro has passed away in 2016, so there will be no more Glands music, which is just a, a tragedy of epic proportions. In that episode, I explored their song Straight Down, which is just a gleaming slice of power pop mastery. So check that out if you're interested. Oh, one more thing. Um, 
if you're a regular listener to this program and you're curious about how things have worked out for a past guest, I've talked to a bunch of past guests lately. I stay in touch with people because most of these people are people that I love very much. And I asked them, would you be okay with answering any follow-up questions from people who heard your original episode? And every one of them said yes. So if you're someone who's heard a past show and you're curious about how things worked out for someone like Evan Rowe or Jake Kreger or Josie Cool, um, shoot me an email at crashandride at protonmail.com and I will contact them and I'll ask them the question and I'll post their answer here. Okay, couple of quick announcements. Crash and Ride is brought to you in part by Greer Amplification. Greer Amp spills the best boutique effects pedals available. If you're looking for an overdrive, boost, fuzz, compressor, or tremolo that is rugged, road tested, and at home, on stage, in the studio, or in your living room, Greer has a pedal for you. Nick and his staff strive to build the best products around with the best tone you've ever heard. They believe in their products and they stand behind them too, backing each one up with a lifetime warranty to the original owner. Each Greer Amps product is hand-built in Athens, Georgia, USA. Go to www.greeramps.com or visit your favorite music retailer today. Crash and Ride is also brought to you in part by Jittery Joe's, a local coffee roaster based in Athens, Georgia. They have a special espresso blend named after the podcast. You can get Crash and Ride espresso whole bean or ground from our website, crashandridepodcast.com slash store. There are also t-shirts in that store that are black or blue. They have the Crash and Ride logo with the slogan, loud guitars save lives on them. They're 20 bucks plus 5 bucks shipping. I'd love to send you one. They make great Christmas gifts, by the way. Speaking of that, as we head into the Christmas season, keep keep your musician friends close. Keep your friends who struggle close. Stay in touch. Call each other. Check in and see how each other are doing. I think that's really important this time of the year. Christmas has always been a really blue time for me. I suspect it is for a lot of musicians. So um, let's keep each other alive. Let's stay in touch. All right, today's episode. Um, Leslie was able to come by the house here. We could do the interview in person, which is my preferred way every time. I'd much rather do that than be on the phone. And we had a really nice conversation. It was a really rainy, gloomy day. We drank a lot of coffee and we talked a lot. You know, it's funny. As a professional singer, she has the strongest voice. Like, she just blew up my mic a couple times in the interview. You'll hear it, man. She, and she wasn't, like, projecting or shouting. She's just got the voice, man. I, I love watching her sing. Um, but it was kind of remarkable trying to get, a, like, a, a, a nice, nice, tame, contained recording with her. We talked about her extraordinary creative family and going off to study jazz in a strange place, you know, with a 10-hour drive from home and how isolated she felt and how she had a spiral. And she started getting really depressed and really anxious, and there was some drug use, and she ended up deciding to kill herself by taking an enormous bottle of pills. And um, thankfully, she's still with us, and the story is kind of amazing what she overcame how she bounced back and what her life's like now it's um it's been really uh, a pleasure to know her and it was a real treat to talk to her so um let's jump into our interview with leslie socal berg Okay, I'm here with Leslie Sokalberg. Leslie is a is a vocalist, uh, has done a lot of um, uh, solo vocal work as a jazz singer, um, but is also a suicide survivor, and um, she revealed that to me, and that's why I wanted to talk to her this week. Um, welcome, Leslie. Hi. Um, I, uh, I I don't know how active you've been lately as a singer. I know that you had a couple of years where you were you were performing all the time, but well, that was a very long time ago. Um, since I had my son Parker pretty much at, 
from that point on, I've been more involved with um, music education. Yeah. So I teach elementary music, and I guess that's more of where my focus is. Mm-hmm. So I guess we should talk about Parker a little bit because he's in my favorite band, Fishbug. <laughs> he he does not take that lightly. I have talked about Fishbug a lot on the show because I think they're so extraordinary. And if you haven't heard them yet, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, they're this amazing young band that is like a cross between PJ Harvey and the Minutemen, and it's just extraordinary. That's a huge compliment. He's such a great musician, and, and Stella, the singer, is one of the most expressive writers and singers I think I've ever seen, much less to be uh, not quite old enough to vote yet. Yeah, exactly. Which is astonishing. But you're from a performance family. Your mom is the um, extraordinary actor, Judy Level. That's true. Um, she has done a bunch of work that I have seen here in Georgia at the State Theater of Georgia, the Springer Theater, and also at some smaller theaters. Um, and your uncle is Chuck Lavelle. He is. Um, yep. It's my mom's brother. Yeah. I, I toured with him this fall. He's, uh, of course, the keyboard player for the Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah. And um, he also had a little garage band before that called the Almond Brothers. <laughs> Well, or my favorite band that nobody mentions is Sea Level. Right. Sea Lavelle. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Fun little play there. Right. We did a Sea Level song with um, that band that we toured with this fall. It was a great song. Very challenging. Most of their stuff is pretty challenging, but again, it's so good. Yeah. Really indicative of that uh, 70s jazz rock funk era. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck is one of the most extraordinarily intuitive musicians I've ever played with, and yeah. but also just in, incredibly agile player. Like not just a great writer, but just um, unbelievably talented and a tiny, tiny bit intimidating. I I could imagine. I we don't normally play together, so I, right. I don't know what that's like. That must be very intimidating. I felt like Peter Tork from the Monkees had been. <laughs> thrown into a room with McCoy Tyner from the John Coltrane Quartet. You know, like, I was like, uh, you know, I, I played in punk bands. <laughs> but was, you were there for a reason. Well, I... I <laughs> it was really intimidating, but it was it was wonderful. So you grew up in a, in a household really full of music and art. I did. My mo- Yeah, as you mentioned, my mom's an actress. Um, my uncle's a musician. My brother actually has a degree in computer animation from SCAD, and he now works for CNN doing computer animation for them. That's extraordinary. My dad jokes that he is a founder, or no, a financer of the arts, <laughs> because he's the uh, <laughs> he's the small business owner, and you know his degrees are on like biology and mechanical engineering, and right. not right. music. So you were you were born in Georgia? No, I was born in Denver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you grew up there? No. We when I was pretty young, we moved to Arizona. I guess I did. Um, so we moved to Arizona. Like I said, I was pretty young. I was about five. Uh-huh. And then we moved here to Georgia. And so I did most of my growing up here in Georgia and Gwinnett County. Yeah. It, it it was fine. It was a it was a fine place to grow up. But I'm very. I guess you could almost say envious of Parker's. Uh, life growing up here in Athens, it is much different than growing up in Gwinnett County. It's also different growing up with Gen X parents versus baby boomer parents, too. Yeah, like, that's true. But Well, but I would even say this, that my parents were very uh, liberal as far as uh, socially liberal. Yeah. And so I very, I very much grew up in a household where uh, everything was open. You were open about your feelings. You were 
open about where you were going and who you were hanging out with and um nothing was taboo yeah i think that was nice well i think your mom you know having a brother uh and the almond brothers at that time was probably a little more cosmopolitan than a lot of the parents of kids you were going to school with well, i think both of my parents in general were much more cosmopolitan they um they were definitely you know children of the 60s sure. that kind of um that's yeah. when they really came up with their identities as people and um well and they maintain that today they i think i told you this they sold everything they don't have a house they don't have cars they sold everything and they just travel so they've been living in oaxaca mexico for the past i don't know a couple months i have been following this so closely on facebook that i think your your mom might feel like i'm tailgating her at this point because i am in love with oaxaca oh really yeah a few people know about oaxaca i so that I don't want to go down too far down that rabbit hole, but I started studying Spanish on my own years ago and got into Spanish literature and and like Pablo Neruda and Garcia Lorca and, yep. and got all into that. And then just uh, some like show on Netflix I was watching, they went to Oaxaca on a food journey and like you know like hot chocolate with every meal and, right. and all the different Oaxaca cheeses and like they did a whole bunch of stuff on tequila and I don't drink anymore so that wasn't all that interesting to me but just but the moles and like all right. the, yeah like, they're just the incredibly like deep food culture there is interesting to me and then I started talking to people here because I've done some work with I don't want to talk about that on the air though I, <laughs> I've done some work with people who are here to work and um I've helped some people move and stuff and mm-hmm. people I meet from Oaxaca are, um, they're like Southerners. They're incredible salt yes. of the earth. They're, um, they're very forthright. Um, and, um, and I really want to go visit and, and, and the way that your mom's doing, it seems so perfect. Well, and it's one of the few places where they have revisited. Typically the only place they revisit is, you know, somewhere where like Denver where we have family or here where their kids live. So for the most part, they, they don't go back to places. And so I think that says a lot about how they feel about Oaxaca that they've now gone back again. And I anticipate they will spend a lot more time there in the future. But the point being that they kind of have a different perspective on life and, um, how it should be lived and that it doesn't matter what other people think about your journey or your life. It's yours and take ownership of it. And, uh, they've gotten some flack from people about their decision to live their life like this, their retirement years. And yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of them. I mean, I miss them a lot and I know that my kids miss them, but I'm glad that they're doing what they want to do. They worked hard for it. What was uh, what was your childhood like? I mean, I'd like to say pretty normal. Yeah. I, you know, I did a lot of sports. I played tennis. I played basketball, swimming, uh, cheerleading, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, grew up in a country club neighborhood type oh. setting. So we, I mean, summertime came. It was eight o'clock. We were out the door and um, at the swimming pool all oh, day. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And so... We, if we couldn't travel, we, my parents were involved in an organization called Servos. So we would essentially be a free place for travelers in other countries to come stay at our house. Oh, wow. And 
vice versa we could go to other countries and experience you know stay with other people there and of course there's a vetting process and background checks and blah 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 yeah um but so i think there was a lot that was very typical about my childhood but i think what was different is kind of this whole perspective of if we can't take our kids out to the world we want to bring the world into our for our kids right so again that goes back to kind of how my parents were raised that kind of cosmopolitan aspect of um you know the arts are important travel is important it wasn't just all about money and right you know what kind of car you're driving that kind of thing it was more about introspection and who you are and being a part of the world as a whole and your community and so do you remember a particular guest from the servos thing that made an impact on you when you were smaller oh i remember several um and what would typically happen is these people would become friends of our families. Uh-huh. So then we would go to Switzerland and stay with Reto, or we would go to Italy and stay with Christiana. And um, obviously it made it cheaper on my parents, but... Right. Um, but also a more intimate travel experience. You're not staying at the Hyatt. Exactly. You're getting to see the the real area the real location how a local lives yeah sort of that's how i like to travel i I was when i was in india we did a lot of like more intimate local places until the last bit of the trip because we wanted to go see the taj mahal and we went to the big hotel the western style hotel yeah and i was like this feels inauthentic like it it feels disconnected right because it is yeah i want to go to the grocery store you know i want to go get coffee i want to feel out a place for real and that sounds like the way that you did it um that's typically well on how we continue to do it when my husband and i travel or when we travel with the kids we always try to do it like that yeah when did music come into your life not until i was in high school i mean it's always been important but really i got my taste of music from my dad um the He's a jazz guy? Or? No, he's Pink Floyd, Jefferson Airplane, Bob okay. Dylan. Yeah. That kind of genre, timeline, yeah. whatever. Um, but uh, when I started performing, that was in, I don't know, maybe my sophomore year in high school. My mom was the drama teacher at my high school, and she was good friends with the music teacher, and Eva Jameson, one of the true loves of my life. This woman is, I don't know, 4'11". Right. And but a personality the size of this room. Yeah. And she would kind of always stop me. When are you going to start singing? You need to come in here and start singing with me. And I <laughs> and I did. It was kind of bullied into it. Yeah. But um found I had a gift there and I think you you get this music for some people it just makes sense. Um, I wonder how she intuited that you were a singer. She's just good like that. A number of the people that she has taught have either gone on to have careers in music or um, just have that musical connection in some way. Mm -hmm. She's just good. Yeah. But um, anyway, so I started singing in my sophomore year. And of course, that was more classical choral stuff. I did a lot of the high school competitions and whatnot but then salvador dolly used to say that you have to learn to paint the classics first which i think is true no you got to learn fundamentals right there's a great quest love quote uh the drummer from the philadelphia hip-hop collective the roots um where he said every time i hear someone use the word genius i go to see what's up and it's someone executing fundamentals with diligence and passion okay i want you to say that again 
Every time I hear somebody say the word genius, I go to see what's up and I find someone executing the fundamentals with diligence and passion. Wow. That is, uh, that's pretty heavy, but you know what? It's really clever and I think a neat way of kind of putting a fine point on it. I think that if you can't, if if you don't have the facility with the basic tools, you could be absolutely the most brilliant person on the planet, but you can't execute. I agree. I also think that like you can't put too much emphasis on fundamentals because you get a guitar player like Ricky Wilson from the B-52s who only had four strings on his guitar and the bottom two were tuned to a, a dyad and the top two were tuned to a different dyad and he would just play bass on the bottom strings and lead on the top. That guy's a genius. Yeah. And that when you talk about genius, like there's a guy who who and also Randy Bewley from Pylon didn't have a standard tuning on his guitar and continued to make amazing art without like without the benefit of YouTube or guitar lessons or anything you'd expect. And, and that's that that's valid. That's that's true. That's accurate. I just I I think that there's also um and these people had that obviously because they explored their instrument and discovered their instrument in new ways. And I think that there has to be a certain level of discipline that goes into really being a musician as you know what I mean? And again, it's beautiful sitting around and just playing music and enjoying that or singing in a choir and really listening to the other people singing around you or the way the music hits your eardrum. But when you really get into understanding um music in whatever in whatever capacity that looks like for you again you're talking about people that completely really reinvented their instrument true and that's different than other musicians who you know like charlie parker i love charlie parker he is not my favorite because you want to talk about a mechanical machine right and that's somebody who knew his instrument and music inside and out yeah but there's a place for that. And there's a place for somebody who also just, you know, the Lester Youngs of the world, another sax, jazz sax player who, he just picked up that horn and blew it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that um, there's a conversation to be had about the, the thin line between discipline and obsession. Um, because for Ricky Wilson to sit down and, 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 and create basically a drone almost a sitar out of a Moserite guitar is, right. is remarkable. And it wasn't like he was going to classes for that. There wasn't like a conservatory environment where they were like, you need to put in three hours of practice today <laughs> on your four string guitar right? in preparation for your recital. No, it was just like, I want to play guitar and this works for me. Well, and this you, is what I have. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you, you did this sort of classical choral uh, I'm assuming you probably went to some competitions and did some. I did yeah, um, both as a soloist or just as an ensemble singer. Or all the above. Mostly, um, mostly ensemble work. I also did a lot of trio stuff. I really, it, you mentioned people don't sing enough and people don't sing enough in groups. And one of the things that I am infatuated with is hearing my voice mixed with another person's voice or multiple other voices. Uh, it's kind of an other level of hearing other than just focusing on what you're doing. And I mean, most musicians have to do that. You have to listen to the bass to understand where you come in or whatever the case may be. Right. But um, in singing, there's this beautiful little 
thing that happens and it's like you can almost see the it you can almost see them weave together are you synesthetic no that would be cool though I, I are have, you oh yeah really oh yeah mixing is all about colors and textures for me when i'm in the studio in front of the monitors and i'm mixing i'm like i'm blending colors and it's uh, um and i thought everybody heard music like that until somebody said oh you're synesthetic and i was like i don't know what that means and they told me if you see music as colors and shapes you have it and yeah I definitely have it but um i don't think it's necessarily useful for anything other than me creating a balanced like visual thing with stereo well but that's neat that if that if it works like that for you that yeah. you it totally does can actually build a picture yeah that's cool no, i mean i see i in fact what i was envisioning as we were talking about voices kind of melding together is like this blue braid right but um so i mean i get that sometimes but it's not typical i think that the, the interesting thing about vocal harmony is that of course the human voice with rare exceptions is monophonic like mm -hmm. you can sing one note at a time right unless you're a tuvan uh, throat singer or you've got the kind right. of perfect damage into your vocal cords that david lee roth had where you could sing. <laughs> i don't want that yeah those weird high whistles harmonies yeah. and stuff or uh, harmonics and stuff but um so in order to create a dyad or a triad or any kind of chord you have to have other voices and i think that there's the there's the sum of the parts and it creates a sort of with a duo a magic third note you know yeah well it's like an unheard note it's like a feeling that's standing in the room there with you yes it's really special i see it as color i think other people <laughs> see it differently or hear it differently but yeah so you were doing some some trio and duet work yeah and it was uh again classical stuff but um when i was a junior in high school we did anything goes the musical yeah and i was lucky enough to play reno sweeney who's that's she's i mean it's just uh cole porter did all the music for it which is he's just incredible him and irving berlin and a lot of that early jazz stuff um really is what got me into jazz in the first place and um so it was right after that i was applying to schools and knew that i wanted to study music and figured that jazz was really where it was at for me yeah so I applied classically to most of the schools and University of Miami was the only one that really had a good solid jazz department. Mm -hmm. So I was this close to going to LSU, but the director of the music school there said, or the music department, whatever said, you know, if you are really feeling this calling towards jazz, I think you need to go to Miami. He said, they're bigger, they're stronger than we are. And he said, they have a pretty intensive program that I think you would like. So I did. Yeah. And he was right. Um, I'll say this. There's a reason why I got scholarships to all of the music programs I applied to. And it was yeah. Eva Jameson because she did have that program every year. We won state competitions every year. Her kids won the solo state competitions. And I mean, she she's that big of a beast when it comes to choral directing and educating her students she's just an exceptional teacher and and she put a lot of she put a lot of emphasis on to educating the musician i mean we had to sight read mm -hmm. to this day one of my favorite things to do is sight read just because it's challenging and it's fun i wish i was better at it oh man when i'm at church i pick the tenor part because it's different and hard and fun yeah but uh 
I mean, we had to sight read, we had to work on ear training, and these are all things that I had to continue at Miami. Just jazz is totally different than classical music. Yeah, my mom was an opera singer. Did I tell you? Really? That? Yeah. And I did a lot of opera, but yeah, my mom's senior recital was supposed to be from the Marriage of Figaro, and she she did House of the Rising Sun instead. Oh, she's she she's that girl. She didn't tell anybody except the accompanist. So everyone had their charts out, you know. For That's incredible. My brother has a reel-to-reel recording of that somewhere. Oh, I would love to hear it. What an, uh, I wonder what made her decide to do that. Just, just personality-wise, who she is. Bloody-mindedness is the English term, I think. I like, love it. She just decided that's what she wanted to do. She has a hilarious story about uh, doing Papageno on the lawn at the governor's mansion dressed in a chicken suit, too. Um, <laughs> yeah. She sounds like a character. She was, and... Um, she she passed in 2014. I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah, she was full on diva though, like her whole life. <laughs> Most are. I started out as a classical major, uh-huh. and then by my second semester of my freshman year, I'd officially switched over into the jazz department, and it was incredibly. I mean, it was a conservatory without being a conservatory. Right. So there's a couple of public university music programs that I would. I've heard about that I would qualify as conservatory. University of North Texas's percussion program yep. is is world class. It would, right. It would and it's conservatory level instruction, but it's public college exactly. tuition. And um University of Miami's jazz program. There's a few more. I can't pull them off the top of my head now, but I hear stories. Well, and it's you know, I was thinking taking 13 classes it was only 18 or 20 hours or whatever but 13 classes is a lot of classes yeah. and, and that's not including practice time for i was a jazz vocal major so there's vocal practice then you have you know you have to take piano you have to take a uh, drum you have to take set at one point and so they want you to learn all these other instruments as well as taking ear training and sight reading and the multiple, multiple levels of theory, which is all great. And I was lucky enough. I tested out of like the first three theories. Right. And, but that just meant that by my sophomore year, I was taking some of the hardest theory that one can take. Right. And I don't necessarily know I was ready for that. I mean, I made it, but um, going back to that pressure, I, I, I think that teenagers put a lot of pressure on themselves to, be what everybody expects them to be. And I mm-hmm. think that we as adults don't always vocalize to them that this is your experience, this is your life, that you you get to do this however you deem necessary, however you want to do it. And so I think a lot of the time kids try to live up to this ideal that they set for them. That, that they set for us. The, the imagined standard that yeah. they think that you have. You know, a couple of months ago, I said to my daughter, um, you, do you know what I want you to be when you grow up? And she said, yeah. I said, yeah, it's just one thing. She's like, I know. It's like, do you know what it is? And she said, a musician. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> no, 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 babe, I just want you to be happy. Like, yeah. that's all I care about, you know? But she was already like, She's oh looking God, down here the, we go. the long hallway of her life, imagining that she's going to end up playing an instrument, whether she wants to or not, because that's what her daddy right, wants. Right, she's stuck. Right. It, it, well, and 
quick aside, one of my favorite things about my seven-year-old, and he started this in pre-K. You know those little pre-K graduation ceremonies, whatever. Yeah, you're four. Yeah. Um, That's a new thing. It's it's odd, but I mean, whatever. It's an opportunity to see your kid in a cap and gown, whatever. Yeah. But they said, they interviewed each kid and said, okay, when you grow up, what do you want to be? And of course, there were plenty of, I want to be a dancer. I want to be a cop. And my son, Cademan, said, I want to be me. Outstanding. Just me. And ever since then, whenever anybody asks, what do you want to be when you grow up? Me. I, I just, that was so deep. Right. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, snap. You have so much to teach us. <laughs> you know, out of the mouths of babes. So it sounds like this was sophomore year you were taking 13 classes, or was it that way from the day? It was you, from the get-go. Man, that's a lot. It, you know, and again, it's a conservatory mentality and um i think it's for some people and it's not for others uh and some people take it very seriously and i tried to yeah i think um and that's when i guess it was second semester of my sophomore year beginning in my junior year that's when i started you know it's in miami there's a saying it snows every day in miami mm. and if every there were lots of drugs that were incredibly readily available yeah and i mean at the school at the dorms at a part i mean like i was there 97 through oh. 2000 pablo escobar was still alive it, well and it was still miami and it was right you know i can't imagine that much has changed there since it's just i've always said it's the most plastic society i've ever been to Everybody is very, very attuned to how much money you have and what you spend and uh, what you drive, what you wear. Well, I think Miami becomes a sort of North Star for a lot of people from the global South. Right. So if you're upper middle class or wealthy and you're from Colombia or Ecuador or Chile, like you go to Miami to spend your money and sort of show it off. It's just, uh, and of course, there's always going to be places in any community that are good and bad. It just, it wasn't for me. There there were pockets there that um, I found to be very comforting. I just, I love the uh, Cuban community there. Mm -hmm. All the kids that I went to school with who were Cuban, one of my favorite things was one of my friends turned 21. And you know, when you turn 21, you go out drinking with your friends and partying and blah, blah, right. blah. No, he had a party where his grandma, his grandmother was there and all of his cousins. And it was very much that Hispanic community type event. And there was drinking over on the side and all of his friends were there, but it was expected that all of his family was there too. And I, I really liked that. I think it made me feel safe in a pretty unsafe environment. When, you know, when I've been on tour in Europe, we play these shows in these little towns in the south of Spain and everyone in town comes from right. four to 94. Like there's grandparents there and young kids and, and, um, you know, you want to clean your language up a little bit in case people speak English. You don't want to offend anybody. Right. But, but at the same time, like there's something wonderful about it not being this weird, like separation of the ages, this weird apartheid of like, and also this kind of the subculture where there's a lot of pathology, you know, like, yes, like you're all locked in this little, I mean, touring in a punk band in the United States, you're in a cinder block room that smells like cigarettes and stale uh, beer and there's blow in the bathroom. And, you know, I mean, 
I don't play music to be part of an, a culture that is completely removed from society at large well yeah and but i think there's also a maturity level that comes with that or an experience that comes with that from kind of it's like you gotta get you have to get through the cement rooms to be able to appreciate the times when you can play for the larger audiences yeah yeah but also like i tend to like outsider music too and it's not always going to be the kind of thing that goes down great with grandma but um i mean but but that's what i've kind of found at least in Miami, I found that kind of in the Cuban culture that there wasn't a lot of judgment or negative association with um, how these young people lived or what they listened to or whatever. And it could have just been those particular families that I hung out with because yeah. I mean, you're going to find that too. But um, And I kind of find that with my family or my parents' friends, which I appreciate, they you know, will listen to Fishbug and Parker's music and they'll say that is not for me but you know what I really appreciate their musicianship and it's undeniable how good that band is but thank yeah. you um so you said that that was one of the few times you felt safe was at this party with the extended family yeah. of your classmate did you feel like that was an unsafe environment as a whole I don't know if unsafe is the right word I felt like nobody really knew who they were and everybody was trying to be something that they weren't. Um, at least when I was hanging out with people my age and I was hanging out with, you know, my friends in college and the other kids in the music program. Mm-hmm. It was just challenging. Um, I had always been so definitive in who I am and I'd always known what I stood for and what I thought was right and I think part of that goes along with kind of the coming of age of during that time is challenging what you thought you knew about yourself in the past. But I think for this, I, it became a spiral and I got really, really, really lost and really far away from who I was. Yeah. And I think that for me and my, suicide attempt that was it, it it wasn't even that i didn't know who i was it's that i never hope i i thought that i would never get back to me again yeah and that that's where my hopelessness came in was that yeah. i i never i just I, I didn't think i'd be able to be myself again i want to i want to contextualize that experience just a little bit for people who haven't been around orchestral or 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 conservatory level musicians the ones that i've worked with you know, when I toured with your uncle, and right. all these young string players who were some of the best in the world, and the level of pressure on them to perform, because it's a very narrow funnel right. of people who play viola when they're like 13 versus people who play viola professionally at 23. Exactly. Is a, a microscopic percentage. Yes. And so you have to be so good because right. there's only so much Arts Foundation money going around for like the Buffalo Symphony and the Fort Worth Symphony and, and the New York Philharmonic. Those slots are... They fill up. <laughs> yeah. And then people live to be 70 or 80 years old playing in those chairs. So, right. Um, and the young symphonic musicians I've met practice six to eight hours a day. Uh, and when it comes time for auditions or performances, they eat beta blockers like candy uh, to control their nervousness or their anxiety. And they are just living an extremely high stress life. Now, you as a, I guess, how are you, 20 years old, 19 years old? You're in college. I was young. So I was 18, 19. So, yeah, mm-hmm. 
about about um, 1920 when all this was going down. Incredibly high pressure environment to perform, to rehearse. Right. Like constantly. Well, and the just simply the auditions for solos in because we still had jazz um, choirs too. Yeah. And and then you were expected to do solo stuff, and you were expected to uh, duet groups, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, I mean, not just practicing, but also like I said, the auditions, and yeah, God, I will never forget my poor, poor uh, solo teacher, my um, private vocal teacher. Yeah, I mean, she just hated my <laughs> she did my voice and she would always say things like Ugh, you just need to go sing country and i would think oh but shit i don't want to sing country i want to sing jazz where was she from i don't remember i think she was from texas oh really um i would have expected that kind of bias from someone who maybe came from new york to miami and was like uh, i've experienced a thing where i walk in the door with my southern accent which I've never thought was particularly strong until I started doing a podcast and listening to my own playback. <laughs> right. Like, God, who is this redneck? You know? <laughs> but well, yours is very slight too. But uh, it, yeah, I've, I, I've gotten used to it now. But at first, I was shocked at how southern I sounded. But I could see like walking in the door if you've got someone who's a native New Yorker, maybe conservatory educated up around Boston or something, and they get to Miami and you walk in and you call them y'all and they just go. I don't think you belong here. Well, and I don't even think it was about that, Patrick. I think that she just was, she just knew what she liked. She was the first person who ever told me she hated the Beatles. And it blew my mind. I was like, how, who hates the Beatles? Like, how does, their catalog is so enormous. There's got to be something you like there. Nope, hate the Beatles. Well, it's also, I think, important to remember that all of these people who are in positions of power over undergraduates have their own pathologies. Yes. It sounds like she might have just maybe not been the most stable person. Well, and I... Anybody who says they hate the Beatles, I'm automatically like, that sounds like a cry for attention. (laughs) Or a cry for help. What is wrong with you? Yeah. And, you know, and I'm sure that she was trying to do it in a supportive way. And they were, don't get me wrong, there were plenty of supportive professors there. It's just. But it only takes one really hypercritical professor to. uh, Well, to really make you question yourself. Sure. And again, I think one of the things that I always. Uh, or I tried to do a good job of was being able to sit back and say, okay, no, I'm here for a reason. I'm not only talented, I'm educated, I'm hardworking. Right. Uh, you know, like I, I get this stuff. I'm here for a reason. Well, you were fortunate in that your parents, especially your mom mm-hmm. and of course your uncle, had shown you that it was possible to do great work in the arts and be like have a valid career. Right. And right. My, my mom gave up opera uh, when I was little because there were a lot of reasons. She had terrible stage fright. And also there was a year in the early 70s where everyone was treating their stage fright with like red wine and Valium. Yeah. And a bunch of people, like five people in one year died. There was a car accident, a suicide, an accidental overdose, something else. And then of course, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison all died. Right. And she was like, this lifestyle leads to that and walked away from it. Well, and you can also argue that that leads to this lifestyle and you know like it's kind of a chicken and the egg story when it comes to like yeah uh drug and alcohol abuse in the arts i mean but see you look at your family 
Right. You know, your Uncle Chuck, I mean, we just went on tour last fall. He's still playing at the very, very top of right. his game. And I've seen your mom perform for years, and she's just absolutely uh, astonishingly talented actor. And, and I think so, so, too. I mean, I, she has made me laugh and cry and yeah. everything in between. Like, she's really gifted. Um, and so you get to the University of Miami with this work ethic and also this vision for a life in the arts, and a lot of people don't get there with that. But then you've got this professor who sounds like she's just pathologically negative. She kind of was. But, you know, it wasn't just that. It was everything, trying to constantly um, live up to other people's expectations. And again, like I said, these kind of phantom expectations that I thought everybody had of me and uh, that weren't real but when you're 19, 20 years old, I mean, now that I am an educator and I've done a lot of research on brain development and, um, you know, we know what's happening inside your brain at this time. Yeah. And it is that your frontal lobe is developing and you think the entire world revolves around you. And if anybody's whispering, they're whispering about you. And so again, now I can objectively look back at some of these things that I thought and felt during that time and think, Oh my God, it wasn't real. I also, though, I've had a couple of conversations. I have a friend who's a session musician in Nashville who's, who has had some struggles recently. We were talking about the fact that I could take just about any kind of rejection except for I take rejection of my musical ability particularly hard. Well, because I think it's the most personal thing to you. Second only to romantic rejection. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, I say this to my students all the time. You know, I teach elementary music and we had a third and fourth grade performance yesterday they do a cute little musical but then my fifth graders i teach them guitar and so we do like as an opening act for the musical yeah they do a little sing-along and i say it all the time to all of them it takes incredible courage for you to stand up in front of people and to put yourself out there like that yes and no matter what you sound like, no matter if you get up and, and you forget the words or you forget a chord or whatever the case may be, it took courage for you to stand up and do this and that's important and you need to remember that because I feel like those building blocks and kids that it's okay it's okay to mess up, it's okay to, to not remember to do the wrong thing and I'm here to support you. That's so important for kids. It's that thing that Lisa says, my wife all the time, life skills through stage skills. Yeah. So you're in this very high pressure environment. You're away from home for the first time. Yeah. And you you hit your first kind of adult who condemns your work. <laughs> Wouldn't be the last, but yeah. Right. And this was sort of the was that the beginning of this sort of spiral? Would you say or just part and parcel of the whole? Um I can't really remember one specific event. It just kind of feels like everything started getting heavier and heavier, kind of all at once. And um, of course, there's that increasing pressure and you don't want to do anything, but then you know you have to. Yeah. So you get up and then you have to work twice as hard at anything. And um, Did you have to overcome your own emotional inertia? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And a lot of people when they first start suffering depression, well, you know, the, I think one of the first things, at least for me, that it affected was my sleep patterns. Yeah. 
And so I went through an enormous uh, insomnia stage where, I mean, I was sleeping like maybe an hour a night, maybe two, and nothing would help. And uh, I, had a, I had a conversation last night with a, a friend who I've always thought was someone who suffered from depression, but we never talked about it because I don't want to pry into his business. Right. And he told me that it's only been like in the last year that he realized he was depressed. And I was like, really, man? What was your, what yeah. was your clue? Right. Well, his clue was, and this is why I bring this up, he said that he felt himself becoming increasingly paranoid. Mm. Now, when I think of that, I often think of people sort of thinking that their toaster is wired for sound by the CIA or sure. um, sort of classic schizophrenic levels of paranoia. But then he, I said, how, how was that manifesting itself? And he said, I just felt like everybody at work was, was um, frustrated with me and that there were people at work who would be happier if I wasn't there and that like maybe there were some discussions about cutting me loose. And I thought, oh, shit, I've had that at every job I've ever had. Yeah. But that is a kind of paranoia. And it, it, it's part and parcel with the anxiety of, that comes hand in hand with depression. Is this idea that, um, that you're not accepted, that people don't like you. Well, and I think that that's why it's so, I, I like that he identified that as paranoia because I'd never really put that label on it. I mean, it's been less than 18 hours since he's, I, and I'm still, it's, ring, it's like ping ponging around my head right now. Well, because I think paranoia is anytime something's different than what you actually think it is. And you've convinced yourself that this is reality, but that's not reality. And so, um, but obviously specifically when it, I, it, when it has to do with you. And uh, I think that that's one of the things that is so freeing is when you work really hard through therapy or self-care or whatever, and you finally get to that point where you're like, you know, I am so good with who I am. It just doesn't matter. All yeah. I got to do is go and make sure my side of the street is clean, make sure I'm doing my job, make sure I'm doing it right. And if anybody doesn't like it, then then that's on them. Yeah. That's incredibly liberating to get there, but it's difficult. Oh, it's so hard to get there. Yeah. So is this sophomore year? Yeah, that's and, when it first really started. Right. And and what happened uh, to the sort of external quantifiers of your well-being, like your grades and your relationship with your folks? Oh, my grades were all still perfect because that's just kind of who I was. I just, um, I, I will say I got one C, but that was in ugh, this musicology class that I had to take. It was brutal. But um but otherwise, I had still had all A's. I was still getting all my work done. I was doing everything I needed to do. Nope. See, and that's the key or the thing about uh, suicide is usually there are no signs. It's not like um, with self-harm, which I've been learning more about recently. Self-harm, typically they'll tell somebody with suicide, nobody knows. And so when I made my attempt everybody my friends my parents my teachers everybody said she is the last person on earth that i would have suspected was feeling this way but how long were you contemplating that as a relief for the amount of anxiety and suffering you were experiencing about a year wow i guess it hadn't been that bad for a year yeah but it started probably that second semester of my sophomore year that i started thinking god everybody's life would be so much better if i wasn't here you know, and th and then you come up with ways to justify your own existence or or why you do things. I don't know. It's it, it's um, 
It doesn't make sense. You know, and it doesn't make sense to you at the time, at least in my experience, it didn't make sense to me, which was then its own spiral. Yeah. Trying to, you know, unpack all this insanity and chaos going and going on inside my own brain. And then just feeling like, okay, just, just go get schoolwork done. Just go get work done. Just go make sure your grades are good. Make sure you know your parts, make sure this and that. And, but there's only so far you can bury your head before your head takes over. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You can't, um, you can't ignore the, the rising, um, tide of unrest in, in with your own well-being forever right. You, right. Can, you can work through it you know that's the sort of that's the rock bottom we talk about and all the aholisms alcoholism workaholism right whatever drug addiction is that for a while you can stay a step ahead of your negative self-talk and bad feelings and self-loathing but not forever no because their brain it goes everywhere your head goes exactly it's <laughs> <So. laughs> stupid Brain. Stupid brain. Um, so there was a year of sort of gradually escalating um, desire for some relief from the obsessive mm -hmm. sadness and, and anxiety. Right. Um, and was there like a, an inflection point where suddenly everything just got so much worse or did... Well, it, there was definitely a time, I would say, at the beginning of the ju my junior year when that's when I really started doing more drugs and I was hanging out with friends that did more drugs and mm -hmm. that's when the real escapism kicked in. Right. Um, your insomnia, was it related to stimulant use or was it just no. your brain was just working over time? Yeah. Brain was just working over time. And, um, Mike Bantione had a long period of sleeplessness. Yeah. In his sophomore year of college, if I recall correctly, and it led to him having a nervous breakdown. I mean, this is, it was yeah. kind of a nervous breakdown, but mine. What I think, very, I I very much think that the uh, insomnia was more related to the depression, yeah. and uh, it wasn't, you know, the depression or the uh, insomnia causing. I think so. Just echoing back to the conversation I had last night with my friend who just realized he was depressed. Um, he had not really. He when he was thinking of terms of depression, he wasn't sort of visualizing it as a time where you have manic periods up periods periods where things where you feel incredible amounts of joy and, and you laugh and he was thinking well i'm i i there's times where i i have days where i just can't stop laughing everything is just so awesome um and uh and then there's periods of time where i don't even want to get out of bed and i was right. like well that's the sine wave of depression right and and uh and he's like i know that now but i was sort of surprised to think that like there, were, there are people out in the world who I love very dearly who may not even be aware that like the symptoms they're experiencing are, are have a very root cause. Right. And, well, and I think that that's what is so important about mental health awareness is there's always been this ridiculous stigma put on it that there's something wrong with you if your brain isn't working at top notch. Man, whose brain is? Yes. Whose brain is always on, right. always working in the right way always flooded with serotonin and dopamine and all the things that it's supposed to have working in the exact same way at the exact same time and the you know it, it's not that's not how people work right and so like you said you're you're constantly finding out about friends that are just now discovering that they've been dealing with these mental instabilities and it's like well yeah 
because we're like human well, what frustrates me is that they'll say things to me like i just thought i wasn't a good person and i'm like <laughs> Oh my God, man! I love you so much. You can't say things like that. It freaks me out. But but you know? that's where your brain goes. Yeah. And and that's what was eventually the catalyst for me in my actual suicide suicide attempt was that uh, it doesn't matter what the actual incident was, but there I just I knew right then and there that I was the worst person that had been born. Period. Yeah. Yeah. For the past 150,000 years, I was the one. Yeah. <laughs> Mike know? Mantione's, uh, that's Mike Mantione, the singer and guitar player from right. Five Eight, who I've worked with for years. His nervous breakdown uh, was, he had, he was disassociative enough that he thought he was the Antichrist. He not So that thinking, like, I am the worst person who has ever lived, is yeah. the flood of, I think, cortisol stress hormone and yeah. like a complete depletion of serotonin and you feel so bad at the end of this long road of depression that you think that no one could be as bad at living as i am right yeah well and that's the other thing is that i had all of my friends at this time were taking ecstasy you know what ecstasy does is it makes your brain produce like three days worth of serotonin all at one time. Right. So you get this incredible rush. I mean, it's basically like bipolar disorder. Right. But you get this huge rush of everything's amazing and then you're out. And there's mm -hmm. only so quickly that your pituitary glands can catch up right. before you have screwed yourself. And that's kind of what they discovered with me is that I had I had done a lot of damage and yeah. um you know, besides just emotionally. All right, a couple of quick announcements here in the break. Um, Crash and Ride would like to let you know about a new industry-wide initiative focused on mental health called Backline. Backline is a hub for artists, industry professionals, and their families to quickly and easily access mental health and wellness resources. Backline is partnered with leading support organizations and care providers to streamline access to services specifically geared towards the music industry. Go to www.backline.care to get the support you need to thrive, both on and off the road. Now, I spoke with someone from Backline a few weeks ago uh, just to find out what it was all about. And what they do is you call in or you contact them via their website and they connect you with a caseworker who's familiar with the kinds of resources and organizations that are available in your area. And that's everything from sober companions to travel with musicians who are trying to stay clean on the road to community organizations that are focused on wellness and well-being for musicians. That could be anything from Music Cares in Nashville or really anywhere in the country to the Sims Foundation in Austin, which is a mental health resource for musicians there. Or if you're in Athens, Georgia, you can go to Nucci Space. Now, Nucci Space is an Athens, Georgia-based nonprofit whose primary mission is to help musicians who are in crisis and try to prevent suicides. A lot of musicians who've been on this show, including myself, talk about how Nucci Space saved their lives. Now, anybody can walk into Nucci Space and say, hey, I'm in crisis, and they'll get referrals. They'll help you find a counselor you can talk to. They'll do everything they can to find people and money and resources to help you get the help that you need. Now, if you're a musician, you qualify to have your therapy subsidized. So I went in there once and said, hey, look, I'm having a really tough time. It's really dark. I don't know what to do with myself. And they said, look, fill out these forms. And after that, I was able to see a counselor for like, I think it was 15 or 20 bucks a session, which was remarkable. 
To contact NutriSpace, call 706-227-1515 or go to NUCI.org. That's 706-227-1515 or go to Nucci.org. Also, if you're experiencing anxiety and depression and contemplating self-harm and you need help right now, call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 24-7. It's free. It's confidential. They have volunteers who are trained to talk it through your crisis. 1-800-273-8255 or go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. All right. Let's jump back into my interview with Leslie socal So t- can you, if it's not too painful, can we go back sure. to the day? Oh, yeah. Um, honestly, I feel very, uh, that that was one of the most important days of my life, I think. Uh-huh. And of course, it took 20 years for me to realize that. But um, I had gotten into a fight with a very significant member of my family. And uh, I... Didn't even think about it. I just walked. I lived uh, behind right off of US 1 in uh, Coral Gables. Uh, I lived right behind, um, uh, what was those? Pharmacies. Anyway, I lived right behind a pharmacy. Eckerd? Yeah, Eckerd Drugs. Yeah, Yeah. Eckerd Drugs. I lived right behind one of those, and I went over and I bought two two bottles of white wine. I don't even know how I got it because I was underage. And, it was um, Miami, though. It was Miami. Yeah. I think I had a fake ID that said that I was an international student and was like 26, because that's believable. Right. But but anyway, um, so, and I got a large bottle of extra strength Tylenol, and I took the whole thing. And, you know, I, I sat there holding a picture of my brother, because I've always been very, very protective over my brother. And, um, and again, going back to that mindset of I'm the worst person and oh thank God my brother's life is going to be so much better now that I'm not in it oh my god you know which is horrible and of course who was the first person that really lost their mind but my brother yeah and um finding out that something can happen yeah yeah and all I kept thinking was God just take care of my brother take care of Stefan Everybody else will be okay. Make sure my brother's okay. This is what's best for everyone. Is Stefan your only sibling? Mm-hmm. And you're older? I am. Yeah. How much older? Two and a half years. How much? It sounds like this was kind of a snap impulse. Mm-hmm. Very much so. A lot of suicides they're discovering aren't planned in the long term. No, no, no. Someone you- has that option in the back of their mind is a thing like, I would like to end my suffering, but there's not a tremendous amount of planning. It's just like... There's an impelling event, right? You had this argument with a family member. Right. And you were like, I'm just doing this now. Well, and I think, at least for me, and what I've learned from a lot of people who have suffered with depression or suicidal thoughts is that um, there's always this romanticized planning beforehand. It's like, oh, it'd be, you know, I could slip my wrists or I could do this or. um, But at that moment, when the attempt actually comes, it, it typically is nothing you've ever even thought of before. At least for me, I'd never even thought about taking Tylenol. I didn't know what that would do. You didn't know that it would cause your liver to... No. Yeah. I knew that it would fuck me up. Right. <laughs> but right. But I didn't know. I had no idea what the symptoms would be, what long-term damage would be, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you weren't thinking long-term. 
No, I thought that that was it. Yeah. And again, a lot of suicide attempts are cries for help. And this was, that's not what this was. This was somehow by the grace of God, I did not die. So what happened? Um, I threw up a lot. And then, uh, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, one of my good friends, Carrie Vanameringen, she was a singer as well. And she was dating a guy, a drummer, Jason Furman. And um, they are now married. But I was supposed to sing backup for Carrie at a jazz vocal forum the next day. And so I called Carrie and I said, hey, listen, I'm not going to be able to make it tomorrow. Can you know, can you have somebody else step in for me? And she said, well, why aren't you going to make it? And I said, well, yeah, I'm sick. I'm whatever. I wasn't going to go into details. Well, for whatever reason, she and Jason both showed up. And um, that part gets a little fuzzy, but um, I let them in. They came in. I think they didn't know how extreme it was. They saw like the wine sitting there. They saw the Tylenol there, but I don't think they realized I'd taken the whole ball bottle, like 70 pills, you know? Oof. And, uh, so she of course expressed concern and, um, I said, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I threw everything up. It's going to be fine. So they left the next day was, um, Weird. My body went into shock. This is yeah. what doctors later tell me. My body had gone into shock, so I had really odd uh, smells. Everything smelled very different than what it normally should. Right. Um, <clears throat> I even went to a party that night. So I took it. This was Thursday night that I took it. The next day, stayed at home. That night, I went to a party, thought everything was fine. The next day, um, I passed out in the hallway of my apartment. And um, I don't even know how my boyfriend at the time, um, our like uh, super for the apartment, let him in. And he came and got me and took me to the hospital. But man, they, they, they thought I was dead. They said they are calling my parents in to identify my body, told me that. Yeah. And I was in the ER for, I don't know, only like two or three days. So this was like liver failure at mm -hmm. that time? And uh, when you were when you went out of the party the night after your attempt, were you thinking, "Well, I failed, and that's that"? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't even thinking like that, Patrick. It wasn't even along those lines. It was just kind of like a, okay, well, now I have this party to go to. Um, <laughs> it was almost like it didn't happen. You know, it's yeah. as queer as that sounds. It's just kind of a high level of denial. Yeah. So, how long were you in the hospital? Only two weeks. Um, For liver failure, that's a pretty short time. Well, I, so here's what happened. This is one of my favorite stories. I think it's just truly miraculous. Uh, so I was in the ER. Again, they told my parents, we're calling in. You're going to have to identify her body. She'll be dead by morning. So they flew in, and there was an ice storm in Atlanta. So they were having trouble getting down to Miami. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just Talk trying to about imagine. Excruciating. Being your dad right now. Oh my God. I, I, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. So, especially now that I'm a parent, I'm like, that's oh, your worst nightmare. That right. is your worst nightmare. No, that's nightmare. what I'm, I'm thinking. I would, I'm just walking to Miami. Fuck this plane. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. How, uh, hitchhike, whatever. Right. I got to get there. <clears throat> so, they, uh, the you're, next day. You're the, unconscious this time. No, I'm conscious. Huh. Yeah, I'm um, in and out. Yeah. They tried pumping my stomach. It wasn't really working. It was already pumped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, whatever was in there was in there. Yeah. So the next day my parents showed up 
and uh, they said, okay, we're going to transfer her to another hospital because she's going to have a liver transplant. So they transferred me to another hospital, and at this point, it was Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, they actually wheeled a TV in for me because I'm a huge football fan. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, huge football fan. What's your team? Denver Broncos okay. and, of course, University of Miami. But, okay. um, so they actually wheeled a TV in for me so that I could watch the Super Bowl. Who was in the Super Bowl that year? I don't remember. It was the Giants and somebody else. Yeah. I remember the Giants, though. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so they... Uh, by the next day, I was prepped to have a liver transplant. Did they have one on ice or something? Like <laughs> They called a not Highway 95 in Miami, they call it the liver factory. As gross as that is, because it is such a dangerous piece of highway, they call it the liver factory. That is amazing. Odd, yeah, odd little piece of information about Miami. I had no idea. Yeah. A friend of mine's father was a life flight pilot. You know the guys who fly yeah, yeah. The, the the helicopters for the trauma. God, stuff. that 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 would have that would be a hell of a job. And he 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 calls motorcycles donor cycles. <laughs> well, and there's a reason why. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love a motorcycle, but I mean, I'm a big fan of two wheels, but I don't do it anymore because I'm a dad. Yeah, we have other know. responsibilities now. Yeah, but and then also having conversations with this guy, like his weekends were spent just scooping up livers that's all over florida yeah flying, flying into you know because there's no helmet law and, you know <laughs> who needs helmets right maybe that's 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 floridian's version of birth control is the no helmet law <laughs> like don't worry about him he'll be dead in two weeks that is so dark I, we can yeah. get dark but yeah so so you're waiting for a liver yeah prep for a transplant yeah, and then the next day when I was supposed to have my transplant, um, I was fine. My liver was fine. And I don't even know how they calculated this, whatever. They said, okay, her liver is fine now, but her kidneys have failed. So now yeah. she needs a kidney transplant. And my dad was actually actually going to give me one of his. Yeah. So oh, I'd do it. Yeah, if my daughter oh, yeah. needed a kidney. Yeah. I'll get it out myself. Just give me a minute. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I only need one. Right. I got a good one. Yeah. But uh, so they, I was set to have surgery the next day. And um, the next day they said, we can't figure it out. She now no longer needs a transplant, but she has to be on dialysis. So I was on dialysis every day, four hours a day for, um, for two weeks. I was in ICU. And they were talking about putting a permanent catheter in my wrist because for the rest of my life, I was going to have to go get dialysis weekly. And after two weeks, it's the weirdest thing. The doctor came in and she said, I, I don't understand this, but your creatinine levels are fine. It's like nothing ever happened to you. I said, well, what, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. She said, what the fuck does that mean? And so they, she said, all right, well, you can go back to Georgia but, um, right. So you're out of school at that point. Yeah. This was, yeah. uh, like I said, it was super bold. So it was January. Mm -hmm. Um, school had started back, but at that point I, yeah, I basically dropped out. Right. So, um, or just, I wasn't going to class. If you could talk to the Leslie who was in the week oh prior, God. what would you say? It is just not that bad. 
Yeah. It is just not that bad. Give, you know, give it a week. Let's take a step back for a second. Take a step back and look at all this from a bigger picture perspective, because I think one of the things that happens when you're knee deep in depression or neck deep in depression is or eyebrow deep. Yeah. you, You get funnel vision. Yeah. Everything's, um, or tunnel vision or whatever. Everything is, is microscopic. You know, your view of the world is so tiny. Yeah. And, um, so one bad thing goes wrong and everything's crumbling. And, um, yeah. Now imagine uh, this is a horrible thing to say, but if, if you thought Parker was in that situation, I know that's no, but that's important. I mean, because you have a teenager and, I'll tell you what, if there's one thing that I am realizing, realizing as the mother of a teenager, it's that I don't know shit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything. <laughs> and just when I thought I was a good mom, I am completely backhanded with this, like, you don't know shit. Mm-hmm. So um, I do entertain those thoughts sometimes. Like, what what could I say to my son? You mean, like, if he was in that? Yeah, if you thought that he was in crisis. I think I'd say the same thing. Right. We, you know, we need to take a step back for a second. You definitely need to get help. But again, I think that now, um, it's so much more acceptable being mentally unstable or having, uh, suicidal thoughts or being in crisis or I think just this newer generation, well, in our generation, we're much more in touch with what's going on inside of our brain. Rightfully so, but you know, maybe it's because the past has bit us hard enough that we now understand how important it is. And we're telling that to our kids. But, um, I think I would tell him, you know, we let's go talk to somebody. Yeah. You know, this this will change. This will pass. Right. But you got to give it time to pass. So let's talk about the process of clawing your way back. So you come home back to Georgia. Yeah. I'm assuming you moved into your parents' house. I did. And then what? Um, I was with them f- until about I guess it was August when I moved down here. But uh, to Athens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To Athens. But I did the pretty typical I did I had to go continue to do dialysis they never wound up putting a catheter in my wrist um to this day I get my creatinine levels checked every time I go get blood work done once a year and they're always fine every I mean it's my doctor was shocked when I told him I've got a new doctor kind of recently within the last year or two and he was floored when I told him that this had happened in the past. He said, your body shows no signs. That's outstanding news. It, it's, it's truly incredible that I, I, sh- I should. In fact, when I moved back to Georgia, the doctor from the ER actually called me and said, you have made me second guess everything I know about medicine. He said, you should be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life, if nothing else. Mm. And so it... I think I really took that to heart. So I did the uh, intensive outpatient therapy. Yeah, I was going to ask what therapy options did you pursue? I was not hospitalized. I was given. Do you think you should have been? No, I think we went through the appropriate steps. Um, I did intensive outpatient therapy. So I was in therapy for eight hours a day, every Whoa. day. Yeah. Like 
one on one or group or both or D all of the above. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if there's a therapy out there, we were going. Right. So it was mom and dad too. Uh, sometimes, yeah, we did family therapy. We did individual therapy just with myself and my dad, um, just with myself and my mom. I mean, it was exactly what it sounds like intensive outpatient therapy yeah and um that was so all summer all spring you get you get back in february i'm guessing mm-hmm. all spring. well really that only went on for about a month or two yeah and uh then i start my parents rightfully so said all right you have to start doing something you either need to get a job or volunteer or go back to school or something mm-hmm. and um as ridiculous as it sounds, I still felt very skittish about school or like responsibilities in general. Like I, yeah. And well, you were overloaded with them. You had overloaded yourself with them. Yeah. And, and I mean, at the time I kind of felt guilty about it. I felt like I should be able to just jump right back in, but Mm. I was very thankful that they gave me the opportunity to volunteer. So I went to a local nursing home and I went there every day. Yeah. And just visited people that didn't have visitors or, you know, painted nails or played chess or whatever. Yeah. That's so really good. I did that for a while and then uh, moved here to Athens and started working here and lived here for a while before I had Parker. When did you finish school? <laughs> um, I had one more. Sem- well, no, I had one more year left. Yeah. Um based upon the number of music credits that I'd taken. Because again, I didn't go back to a conservatory-esque type program. I right. went instead to Piedmont College. Yep. And um, Habersham County. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's an odd place. Habersham County or Piedmont? Vi- or Habersham County. Yeah. Yeah, it's an odd place. I mean, it's wonderful, don't get me wrong, but there are, um, I got a lot of, you're not from around here. I get a lot of that. It was just, it was an odd place to live, but we... I had moved back to Denver, and I guess this was in 2003 or 2004. I'd moved back to Denver and was working for an aunt of mine. They have a small business there. And uh, so I was running that business with her and decided that I wanted to be a teacher. I was, it was getting to that point where I was spending a lot of time away from Parker, and he was getting to that age where he was about to start school, and I kind of... Uh, spun my wheels for a little bit trying to figure out okay what what is the best career that I can have and have the schedule that my son would have and of course I landed on teaching so I went to Habersham and it took me about a year to finish up my bachelor's degree but they were really cool and they let me do my graduate degree at the same time so it only took me three semesters to do my grad school because I was taking like 18 hours yeah. So I kind of blew through all that. And um, so that was, hold on, let me think about that. 2006 or seven is when I went back to school. Do you feel like making the kind of changes in your life where you have a little bit more humane schedule and a lot less of this crazy expectations of your undergrad and also, of course, staying away from ecstasy? Um, <laughs> it's the little things. Yeah. Is that Has that been enough? Do you still do therapy? Do you still do like work to sort of do you have hints of depression even now oh yeah i i've been on wellbutrin for i don't know a couple years a few years now yeah i'm very acutely aware of my mental health Uh um obviously through just a long life 
of dealing with this. And, you know, it, uh, probably needless to say, I hope I did not get better, you know, like that. It, right. it took a, it took a very long time and me screwing up a lot more and doing really dumb teenage things for a little while um, before I really kind of decided. And, and obviously, you know, the, the birth of your child or getting your kid is that's life changing. And, and that when I had Parker, that's when I kind of took a step back and said, okay, I cannot be here for this wonderful person if I'm not whole. Right. And so that's when I really started making an effort to, um, make my own mental health a priority. So do you feel like that some of the acting out that you did in the wake of your suicide was guilt and shame about what had happened? Mm -hmm. I think I was still in that kind of denial, uh, head in the sand, um, escape mentality. Yeah. I still don't think I'd, I, I hadn't really faced it. I had faced it as far as saying, yes, I did this. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm moving past, but I'd never really dug into the meat and bones of why I did it, right? what I could have done to prevent it, uh-huh. what I needed to change for the future so that that never happened. You know what I mean? Like I dealt with it on a very surface level. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how you're encouraged to deal with it. If you don't have a strong recovery framework around you. Well, and I was in some pretty good therapy for a long time, but I, you know, again, I was also young Yeah, and I, that's one of the things, again, the mom of a teenager that I'm being struck with a lot recently is, um, is just age. They seem like little adults when they're teenagers. They're not, they're not, they're not. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. I think that acceptance is the opposite of guilt. And I think that there's an amount of, like, when you do something and it injures a lot of people around you, there's a period of time you go through where you don't really allow yourself to have been, to have just made a mistake. You're, right. you're like, this mistake I made is is not, I'm a terrible person. It's the, like You don't have this ability to accept yourself as fallible and an imperfect, like, person. Yeah. And um, so I, that's why I asked about, the like acting out in the wake of that. It's like punishing yourself. Well, and I think, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I think, I think really it wasn't until I started, I guess I would even say really going back to school and, um, kind of rededicating my life and making, very specific decisions about my future that it, well in my future and my son's future that I really started looking at mental health in a different way. Yeah. Did you have any postpartum issues at all? Mm-mm. Not really. Yeah. I was one of those very, very lucky women that, um, and I have so much compassion for women that go through that because so it, you've got this I. additional hurdle you have to clear and uh, after everything else you know that you got all this health stuff you got to recover from and yeah and this you have, there's almost no time to rest especially in america where your maternity leave is so short and there's all this pressure there's a tremendous amount of pressure and if you're dealing with depression on top of that oh my god man well and then you know what you and i know one of the things about depression is every single thing seems like 
a, a world event. Yes. You know, doing your laundry, it's like, oh my God, I got to collect up all the laundry. And, yeah. and of course, now I'm mentally well. So it's like, yeah, just do the laundry. Right. But <clears throat> when you're, when you've just had a baby, you know how much work there is. Right. So I can't even imagine how daunting every single little task must feel. So I'm with you. I have just a huge spot in my heart for moms. I think the atomization of capitalism really does a huge disservice to people raising kids. Well, I think it's just straight up ignorant. I think, it, right. you know, you're the fact that like when I was born, my mom was living at my grandparents' house made things so much easier for her. You know, the fact that they were never more than 10 steps away was huge. Yeah. And we joke all the time that I had Cademan, um, you know, my youngest, he's, he's, he's challenging. He's wonderful. He's thoughtful. He's smart. He's hilarious, but he's a challenge. And we joke all the time that God gave me Cademan when he knew that I would have my husband and an older brother and myself when there right. would be three of us around right. at all times. Team SoCal bird. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, we got this. Yeah. We've got jackets. Yeah. But, um, so you do some ongoing work. You monitor your mental health pretty closely. I do. Yeah. And, and um, I think I'm, you know, and read self. I don't really read self-help books. I read, um, I'm jumping back into, have you read Letting Go? Yes. By yeah, I'm rereading that one again. And it's one of those books that I feel like everybody needs to, every once in a while, jump back into that because. I found that there's certain books in my life, that one included, where you can just randomly open the book to a page. Any page. Right. And, and you're like, be oh, that makes so much there. sense. Yeah. I was joking when you said, I, I don't really read self-help books. I was going to say, nobody really does. They just sit on the nightstand. Right. You know? Exactly. They sit there. They're there for your glasses, you know, so you can put your glasses somewhere at night. But, um. Well, but one of the things that I love about the school where I work is um, we put a lot of energy and thought into trauma and uh, having a trauma-sensitive classroom because a significant portion of the students at my school suffer from some sort of trauma. You're, you're not just looking after your own mental health. Now, you're also, you've also got a classroom full of students you're keeping an eye on, too. Well, not a classroom. I teach music, so I've got 543 right. kids. Yeah. And, uh, but you're a mandated reporter, right? I am. People who don't know what that means, if you're a professional educator, healthcare professional, or law enforcement officer, or work in the fire department, there's a law that says if you if you suspect that there's abuse happening, you have to report it. Yeah. And you've done that, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. How many times did you guess you've done that? Um, a lot. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, and, and God, and it's, it's incredibly heartbreaking when you hear about some of the things that these poor kids have to go through. Uh, and, uh, and when they come to school and you just, you just know, you yeah. know, what's been going on at home mm -hmm. and you know, the, and, and these poor teachers are asked to have this kid sit at a desk for seven hours and work on writing. And meanwhile, right. this kid, his cortisol level is through the roof. Yeah. And he all he's thinking is fight or flight right now. Right. And you're trying to get him to take a map test. You know, and right. it's like the, the, the disconnect is just astounding. You hear this argument from people who, who are um, fiscally conservative. And, and by that, I mean uh, sociopaths um, <laughs> who say that you can't just keep dumping money into schools if it's not having any effect. And to that, I say... I, I would love more money. Right. Well, 
can we at least try it? <laughs> right. You know? Let's see what happens. Right. But also, you part of that is free lunch and free breakfast programs for students who are hungry. They're hungry. The fuck, kids are fucking hungry. You know. And you're not going to be able to focus on math if you're trying to figure out what how to fix your stomach right and the, the problem with just pouring money into the school is you're trying to raise a boat without raising the ocean like yeah. the schools are in neighborhoods and the neighborhoods are in cities and the cities are in counties and the counties are in states where there's been economic precarity forever these kids are in crisis well and if you ask teachers what we need they will say over and over again staff we need more people yeah, we have. I mean, and it's not even about classroom levels. It's about support systems. We were lucky enough again to just hire a new behavioral specialist at my school, and um, and kind of all they do is walk around and get these kids when they're losing their minds and flipping chairs and throwing ukuleles in classrooms and take them outside and say, "What is going on?" Yeah, and usually it's something along the lines of, "My dad just went back to jail," right. or. Last year, last year, we had three shootings at my school that involved students, parents shooting other students' parents. You know, I mean, and what do these kids do with that? What do they do with that? They don't know. They don't understand how this works. They don't. I mean, if you're lucky, you can catch these kids when they're still young enough and raw enough that you can kind of help them actually contextualize that. Because if they're allowed to grow into the hardened attitudes of the sort of people who will shoot someone else's It becomes a pipeline. Yeah. That's how we get our pipelines. And that's what I think, you know, is just so discouraging about a lot of this is um there's only so much we can do in the classroom yeah no it's it's the boat in the ocean yeah exactly yeah. so i usually wind these up with a series of 10 questions and I, I think you've we talked about a couple of episodes so i know you've heard the podcast so if you're ready to jump in i should do it i can't remember what the questions are but that's okay um at least it's not going to be a complete surprise <laughs> <laughs> i think i've got a couple okay what is the fondest memory you have of a meal that you've had I've been thinking about this one a lot because I was paying attention. It, first of all, may I say that my family uh, worships food isn't the right way to say that. We were talking about your mom being a, in Oaxaca, and I forgot something that I was going to mention, which is that I was in a, a restaurant, and there's a taqueria here where a lot of the people there are either from Guanajuato or mm -hmm. Oaxaca. And one day I was in there, and there was this big bowl of flowers. These bright yellow, beautiful flowers behind the counter. And um, I was ordering food, and I was just sort of watching, looking into the kitchen because it's a countertop thing. Yeah. And they took a big handful of those flowers and they threw them into a quesadilla. And I was like, I want a flower quesadilla. <laughs> Whatever it was, it squash blossom? Yeah, that's yeah. a Oaxaca thing. Like yeah. the bright yellow squash blossom goes in every kind of food. Oh, yeah. It's delicious. It is. I love that. Um, I think. There, one of my favorite food experiences was uh, my husband and I, when we got married, it was a super low key thing. We were not into the big, you know, white dress and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So, but for our rehearsal dinner, it was all of my family, all of his family there. Everybody was just jovial. And we just made a shitload of lasagna. And everybody just ate lasagna and salad and drank red wine and laughed. And, um, that was that was really special to me because to in my mind at that time it was kind of the two of us setting up what we wanted our future to look like together. Yeah, that the, that's why the food question is so important to me. The food yeah. question is important to me because 
it really is about family and values and community. Yeah. So that w- that was a big one for me. Yeah. Um, the second question, and uh, I offer people sometimes two options on this because, especially for women, the, the question as it was originally framed could be really intense and triggering. But okay. um, <laughs> the two questions are uh, either uh, what is the most frightened you've ever been or tell me about a time that you were braver than you ever thought you could be. Um, I think as a parent, any parent's worst fear is, uh, usually centered around your child. Yeah. And, uh, I had a scare not too long ago with my oldest and I think that's the most frightened I've ever been. Yeah. Um, whenever you think of losing, yeah, you know, that's that it's terrifying yes. especially when they're not right there next to you and you have to go find them that's that i think that was the, the most afraid i've ever been um braver than i thought i could ever be um you know i i the only thing that's coming to mind right now is when i had a cush job back in colorado i love i was living with great friends or we had our own house but i had great friends great family still do and um decided that i needed to give that up to spend more time with my kid and so just stuck myself and my dog in the car and drove cross country back to i mean it was back to georgia my parents were living you know an hour away but yeah that dog aspen Aspen the Wonder Dog. Aspen the Wonder Dog. Yeah. Um, the third question is, what is the thing in your life that you've lost that you regret losing the most? You know, I think, um, I was thinking about individual things, but really, um, I, I'm thinking more about a, a specific time in my life when I feel like I really lost some innocence uh-huh. that um, I can't get back. I mean, there are some... Um, specific things or um articles that i lost during that time um but i think it was more of an emotional innocence that i lost during that time that i gave up during that time that college time uh, it was after that yeah i had oh. moved back to athens but it was but it was one of those sparks in my big okay we got to fix this right you can get into all the trouble you want in athens georgia yeah <laughs> <laughs> you should trouble is waiting for you yeah it's funny because it's in many ways just a quiet little like North Georgia college town, but it's got dark corners. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, tell me about a time you received an act of kindness from a stranger. Oh, all the time. Yeah. Well, actually, this is a neat story. Uh, so my school is right over by the University of Georgia. And the other day I was at the gas station and I mean, it was a little thing. I was going in for like a cup of coffee and a treat for my son for after school. And, uh, the guy behind me said, or the guy in front of me, he said, put your stuff up on the counter. And I said, no, 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 that's okay. He said, put your stuff on the counter. And I said, oh, okay. So thank you. And, um, he bought my stuff and then he left and, uh, the lady behind the counter said, oh, you know who that is, right? I said, no. She said, he's the offensive line coach for university of Georgia. I said, oh. well, good for him. That's not, if I had, I would like to think that if I had that kind of fundage that I would do that for people, Yeah, you know, but I don't know. That was just a nice little thing that somebody did. Lisa <laughs> met Mark Richt once, the former head coach of the University of Georgia. And University of Miami. 
Yeah. Oh. He went to Miami after he yeah. left here. And they had a great season, as I recall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mark Richt was doing a thing where uh, people in the community read to kids. Of course, Lisa used to run her own theater company, and so she was there. And Richt was nervous as a cat in a room full of rocket chairs. Like, because um, you know, he, he, reading to kids was not his normal ballywick. Right. You know? <laughs> right. He, he, he yells at grown men. Right. Right. Um, but you know, I, I like that question, but I think that if you, if you pay attention, it's happening all the time around you. Oh yeah. And I, I, uh, I'd like to think that my life is full of little kind moments, both from my giving them and from my receiving them. I'm just too blessed to pay attention to the, (laughs) to the specific details. Right. Right. I've, I've had some extraordinary kindness has shown to me in my life not least of which is as a touring musician i've slept on a thousand floors oh yeah you know or couches or whatever um what's your favorite place to gig you don't perform a lot i tried to talk you into being in a band with me at one point and you were like nope too busy <laughs> you were trying no you were trying to ask me to sing some stuff that give me shelter the female part on that are you kidding me yeah what do you think i am ella fitzgerald like that that's not how this works i am not aretha franklin <clears throat> That's, uh, I, I would love to play with you sometime, though. Mary Clayton was her name. Yeah, and she's to this day godlike. Uh, was pregnant and she did that session. I, I have a cut on this side. Would you like to put some like salt into this wound as well? <laughs> <laughs> she was knocked up while she was doing that. Oh man, um, such uh, if you I'll, at some point I'm going to do a song explication of "Give Me Shelter" because I think that it's probably one of my top three favorite rock songs of all time. Really? Even it's though, a good one, but even though Martin Scorsese has nearly ruined it by putting in every film he makes, every but, film about a person who's doing shitty things, right? Yeah, um, but it's all Mary Clayton for me. And, oh, I totally agree. And Charlie Watts, but yeah. Um, but favorite place to gig? I, can I can I do a two parter? Sure, sure. I'll say my favorite place to gig and my favorite place to see a show. Okay. Can I do that? Sure. All right, rewriting rules. Um, I love the Georgia Theater. It's um, yeah. Number one, it's I think one of the most professional places around. I think everybody knows their stuff. Colm O'Reilly is just—he's a beast, he's, superhero. Yeah, he he knows his stuff. He knows what he's doing. I've seen him angry one time. Oh, I've seen him twice. twice. Not at me. Right. Not at me. No, but I, at other people. If he's ever been angry at me, he hasn't told me. And if uh, if I ever you found out know. that he had been, I'd be heartbroken because he's such a good man. Yeah. No, you would know. Yeah. Um, and there are some other fun places, and um, like there uh, there was a place called I think it was like the Cotton Mill or something down in Augusta that I used to really like. Oh yeah. I don't know. I used to play squeakies there. Uh, now I'm blanking on what it was called. There's Squeakies, and of course, there's the Soul Bar, and now Sky City. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. It's it, been so long since I've toured anyway, though. Augusta is a great place to play. It though. really is. It, it it gets no credit. People will come see anybody there. But I also one of my favorite places to go see a band is um, it's called the Gothic Theater in Denver, and it's like the Georgia Theater, um, but before they rebuilt the Georgia Theater, it was a lot cleaner and more well put together than the theater. Yeah. Now, now the theater's rivaling it, right. but um, man, they've got a great staff there, great sound system. And every single show I've ever seen at the Gothic is just mind blowing. I mean, it's like people walk through those doors and rise to the occasion. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I imagine Red Rocks is probably like that. Red Rocks is like that too, and I've seen um, I've seen a few shows at Red Rocks, but you know, I I'm a big fan of the intimate theater. Yeah. I don't ever go see shows uh, at big venues unless it's really an extraordinary occasion. Um, like I've never, I've never been to Red Rocks. I've, I want to play Red Rocks one day, um, <laughs> but I mean, who doesn't? You know? Exactly. But I don't think you can like sit in the dressing room at Red Rocks and be like, I think we're just going to phone it in tonight, guys. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. There's a level of expectation there. Yeah, yeah. But um, How jaded would you have to be to, to play that beautiful, natural setting and be like, yeah, whatever. You know. There, there are some of those out there, and they get exactly what they deserve. <laughs> you know, yes, they do. You get to the end of of ten years of touring and playing shows, and you and you were too cool to enjoy it. Like, man, I, I, I feel sorry for you, man. I do too. You know? what a, talking, speaking of lives well wasted, right? <laughs> Sounds terrible. So, uh, income and visa considerations aside, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? Oy. I don't know. I haven't been to that many places. I mean, I've been to Europe. Um, my husband and I kind of have a dream of being snowbirds, but snowbirds as far as we would actually like to do winters in Colorado yeah. and summers in um, uh, Boca de Torres, which is in Panama. I've never been there. I haven't either, but it looks beautiful. Bullmouth. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it, it just it looks beautiful, and huh. it's you know we like the idea of like you know, having an apartment over like some bar or shack. Some you know what I mean? Like we we that sounds fun to us. Man, I stayed at a, a, a apartment over a bar in Barcelona when we were on tour once, and yeah. um, you know I don't. If I, if I imagine living over an American bar, it doesn't sound interesting at no, all. Sounds you know? horrible. Yeah. But, you know, I always knew when there was a soccer game because I'd look out the window. Right. And it was packed. Yeah. And it was, you know, football club de Barcelona playing, you yeah. know, Real Madrid or something. And there would be people out in the street and tapas everywhere. It was, it was great. Um, do, you, uh, do you have a favorite musical instrument? And if so... Like, do you have an ideal one? This is the one you imagine, like, this is a perfect instrument. If if so, do you already own it or not? Well, I think it, for me, it's kind of a musical genre question. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of jazz trombone. Yeah? I just think that is the coolest instrument. And what people can do with the trombone is really interesting. Um, banjo is high on my list of instruments to learn how to play. Yeah. Do you own a banjo? I don't. Yeah. I mean, we should. We've got like seven bases in our house, but yeah, no, ba- but no banjo. Yeah, but uh, and I think I just have a an affinity towards bass for nostalgic reasons. That's yeah. what both my husband and my son plays. Yeah. Play so. Is there like a particular banjo you imagine? Like, oh man, if I could just find one of those Slingerland banjos from the '60s, or no, I just want to play like Earl Scruggs. You know, like. <laughs> We better start now. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so much joy in his playing. Too. Oh God, yeah. and I'm a huge bluegrass fan too. Yeah. Have you lost any musical instruments through theft or pawning or having to sell oh that you God, wish you could no. get back? Knock on wood. Yeah, knock on wood. Knock on wood. If you could be a guest musician with any performer and and and, and do a song at, at, uh, with any band or performer, who would you pick? Alive or dead, doesn't matter. I mean, I would love to sing with Sarah Vaughn or 
Stevie, I'm an enormous Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon to me. They just hung the moon. Yeah. And um, I'd like to think I wouldn't like shit my pants because I'd be so like, you know, intimidated. But uh, that I, if I could sit in with any one of those three, that would be, it'd be ideal. Yeah. Beyond. Last question. Okay. Um, if you could imagine a taxi that could go anywhere in space or time, and you got in and said to the driver, "Hey, man, take take me home." Uh, where is home? Franktown, Colorado. My yeah. um, I one of my dad's sisters, my aunt, is probably the closest person to me. Um, I think having a relationship with an aunt or an uncle when it's that close, it's it's a lot different than parental or friendly it's just on a different level yeah and she has 12 acres out there uh frank town is this tiny little town about i don't know 40 miles south of denver so it's out you know off the beaten path and uh it's in a county called douglas county which is actually one of the more wealthier counties in the west it's very expensive yeah but she bought land there i mean right 30 years ago right um, back when it was not expensive, but it's a very um, agricultural community. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows the people at the feed store, and you know she has mules and donkeys, and you know basset hounds and crazy stuff right. like that. <laughs> and yeah. um, but that that's that's home. That, there's just something. It's not only the people, but there's a connection that I have to that earth there. Yeah. That um, has there been family gatherings there? I mean, mm-hmm, yeah, a lot. Yeah. But we, it just, um, we, if she, we, the, we have this in writing, if she ever decides to sell it, I get first right of re- refusal, right. but only at price tags from 30 years ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not dealing with inflation here. Right. Is so, it grassy or is it more plains, dusty? Um, it's, well, it's that area of Colorado is a lot more rocky. Yeah. So it's right by a canyon. Um, so her actual area, there's lots of like scrub oak. Mm-hmm. You know what those are? They're kind of they're oak trees, but they're kind of small and they look kind of scraggly. Yeah. Um, but it's very hilly. Uh, it's just beautiful. And then if you look um, to the west side of her house, about maybe 50 yards out, there's this huge uh, rock outcropping. So sounds it's, sounds lovely. Yeah, it is. It's 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 home. Yeah. Well, this has been really great. I'm really grateful. Thanks, Patrick. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank Uh, you for the offer. Yeah. Or the invite. Yeah. Man, she's so great. Like, she... She has such a strong dedication to giving back to her community after having been through so much. And she's an extraordinary educator. And, man, I'd love to get her on a stage again soon just so people can see what an extraordinary set of pipes she has. such a good singer. All right, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You know, thanks to Jake Kreger. He's basically our de facto producer. He sends me notes after every show to tell me what I did wrong and what I did right. So if the show's better now than it was the first time you heard it, that's all thanks to Jake. And that's things like, hey, man, the music's coming up too loud when you're not talking. And like, he helped me fix that. That's Jake's. He's been, that's his hand at work. And also, quite honestly, I, I call Jake a lot just to blow off steam, like, just to talk about stuff. So, Jake, you're you're part of what makes this show possible. Thank you so much. 
Also, thanks to Gene Wolfolk and the Powder Room. They provide all of the music for each episode, the intro, the little bumper, and what you're hearing under my voice right now. That's all from the Powder Room. I saw those guys today. Bubba, the bass player from the Powder Room, got married to his beautiful wife, Adrian. It was a wonderful wedding. I cried. Everybody cried. It was so great. Gene was there. Of course, he's the singer, songwriter, guitar player from Powder Room, and he's just an extraordinary talent. It was great to see him. Man, what a great day it was. Part of the reason this episode is coming in at the last minute is because I was there for hours and just didn't want to leave. It was so special. Uh, the Powder Room's music can be found on their Bandcamp page. That's at thepowderroom.bandcamp.com. Um, two of the songs that you hear on every episode are from their album, Curtains, which I did not play on, and then the bit at the halftime announcements uh, that you hear there, the sort of quiet beginning that roars into life is... Um, a song called Lucky from the album Lucky that I did play on. So go check them out. Throw them a few bucks. They're a great band that deserves to be heard. Thanks to Heil Audio. They gave me a great deal on a pair of PR40 microphones. The PR40 is a great studio microphone. I used to use it on snare drum, bass drum, and bass cabinet. But I've also found that it's a great broadcast mic. If you want to make your podcast sound better, you want to upgrade your mics, check into the Heil PR40. It's a really, really good podcast mic. In addition to everything else, it does well. All right. Man, it was it was so good to see the Powder Room guys today. It was so good to see so many Athens musicians in one place. It was like the gathering of the townies. It was really special. There was a lot of great music and a lot of great food and a lot of happy people. And I just, it was really good. I wish you could have been there. Um, so until we meet again, um, take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. Ask for help if you need it. Go see live music. Support your favorite band. And remember, loud guitars save lives. Save lives.